You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Toronto Center's webinar on pandemics and financial inclusion. I am Babak Abbasadeh, President and CEO of Toronto Center for Global Leadership in Financial Supervision. Since our establishment in 2000, sorry, 1998, we have trained more than 13,000 mid and senior level supervisors and residents from 190 jurisdictions. Um, more than 1.7 billion people worldwide remain unbanked, and the majority are women. Therefore, financial inclusion is very important for the achievement of the SDGs, plus crisis such as this one, this pandemic, disproportionately affect the poor. In today's episode, we sit down with two prominent experts to cover financial sector regulation supervision, as well as the financial inclusion dimensions of the current challenge. We circulated their bios to you in advance. The Honorable John Rongamba is the governor of the National Bank of Rwanda. He's also the former Minister of Finance and Economy of Rwanda. In 2015, he was voted Governor of the Year for the Sub-Saharan Africa region and represents his country at the World Economic Forum and many other distinguished uh, entities. Connor Donaldson is the head of implementation of the International Association of Insurance Supervisors. He's well connected to various high level international forum cooperation on standard setting and is a member of Toronto Centre's Insurance and Pensions Advisory Board. Welcome to both of you gentlemen. Thank you for joining us uh, today. So thank you. Welcome. Finally, thank you very much, uh, thanks. Finally, I would like to thank our fu uh, funders, Global Affairs Canada, Swedish CETA, the IMF, USAID, Jersey Overseas Aid, and Comic Relief, without whom we could not achieve our global mission. Also, a big nod to Demet Chanakche and uh, Diana Bird of our office, who worked tirelessly to make these webinars possible. Thank you. Before we start, I know that many of our viewers have questions for these two experts, and we have allotted time to deliver your answers. Please type your questions in the Q&A tab on your Zoom, which you will find below the video screen, and we will answer as many as time allows. So please do not use the chat function, use the Q&A, it's already there. Governor, the first question goes to you. Crisis matters. Over the past decades, World Bank research has highlighted that financial crisis can throw millions back into poverty. We all still have fresh memories of the 2008 uh, financial crisis, as well as other global and regional crises. But this one feels different. In your view, what's different this time? Yeah, thanks, Babak, uh, and thanks to the Toronto Center for the invitation to this webinar. Yeah. <clears throat> We've gone through different crises across the globe, but uh, I'll say this 
this particular crisis is different from the 2089 uh, uh, crisis, maybe from three angles. One is uh, the 2008 crisis was really a financial crisis and focused on issues uh, to deal with the economy. And so across the globe, uh, efforts were focused on stimulating the economy. And so at least resources were pushed in one direction. While this particular crisis is started with the health crisis, uh, so sort of the opposite. Now, people are locking down economies to try and deal with the, uh, the health issues of, uh, brought about by this pandemic. And that, in effect, has uh, impacted negatively on different economies. So one is in what kind of crisis we are dealing with. This is really different. Uh, it's it's uh, We have a health crisis that has created an economic crisis. And that's, that's a bit complex to deal with. Number two, <clears throat> in terms of uh, uh, the magnitude, in 2008-2009, yes, the economy, the global economy crashed, but we expect the crash this time to be more significant. When you look at the numbers, I think that time, uh, 2009, we had the, the global economy growing by negative 0.1%. And as you heard from the IMF this year, the economy is projected, the global economy is projected to shrink, let me, let me not use grow, to shrink by negative uh, 3%. So <clears throat> the magnitude or the negative impact on the global economy is really big. That is in terms of the numbers, but this one is also now affecting almost every country across the globe. When 2008-9, some of our countries that were uh, underdeveloped and not really linked to the global financial system were a bit shielded from the crisis. So we, for example, talking about Rwanda, we really did feel much about uh, the 2008-2009 crisis. But now we are being hit and we expected, the, the developing countries are expected to be hit harder than even the developed uh, countries. So, Take an example in Rwanda, that time our economy grew by 6.2% in 2009. This time, the preliminary numbers we have, uh, we are revising down the original projections we had of 8.1% by the beginning of this year for 2020, and revising that down to 2%, assuming all things uh, <clears throat> go well. So it's different in terms of the magnitude, in terms of the geographical uh, uh, impact uh, and then the, the third and even more uh, difficult one is that that time in 2008-9 authorities had uh, policy options we had tools to use to deal with the financial crisis uh, either monetary policy they we had room to adjust monetary policy then uh, from the fiscal policy point of view countries went to borrow to invest in infrastructure projects and different other uh, uh, sectors stimulated the economy. Today, the countries are heavily indebted and linked to the zero eight crisis. So the room to borrow and stimulate the economy is now very limited. The banks, the central banks, the monetary policies completely limited. All the tools were used to deal with the, the financial crisis. Most of the banks are zero percent uh, uh, policy rates. So you can't go any further. We've, we've gone with to non-traditional uh, policy tools used by central banks. It, it's, it really hit us when we are in a difficult situation and with the limited policy actions, 
So it might take time to really deal with the economic impact that comes with this uh, crisis. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Governor. You connected the dots very well. It's interesting and it's also kind of uh, anxiety inducing to hear that the bullets have already been fired and maybe we need to go grab a baseball bat or some other kind of a weapon to deal with this. And another observation is that in 2008, uh, 2009, banks and insurance companies for some were the culprits. Now everybody seems to be a collateral damage and we're all in it together. So you, you, uh, you connected them very well, as I mentioned. Uh, just a quick uh, mention that uh, we have uh, more than 200 participants, I think reaching close to 250, from countries ranging from Albania to Zimbabwe. So we have all the letters of alphabet uh, covered today and from all the major continents, Africa, Asia, Latin America, Europe, so and North America, of course, and friends from Malaysia and Indonesia. So, you know, no, no time zone has stopped people from listening to you. So no pressure for you, Connor, but moving on to you. Emerging markets and developing economies face higher economic risks and hardships for their vulnerable populations due to a lack of resources during the COVID-19 crisis and economic disruptions. From your vantage point, what are the implications for the insurance sector and supervisors, please? Uh, thank you very much, Babak. And uh, there's a lot to unpack in that, in that question. So uh, first and foremost, what I would say is that um, it's crises like these that um, remind us why uh, insurance is an essential service. Uh, it provides critical protections to individuals, families, and to businesses. And in this time, what we are reminded, uh, and it is unfortunate, that insurance penetration rates uh, remain quite low across emerging markets and developing economies. And so in, in, in light of this situation, um, it's, it, it is, I think, important to, to note that um, we stand uh, as insurance supervisors uh, in a position to uh, really I think reflect on some of the challenges um, uh, facing the industry and facing supervisors. Um, ultimately, our number one objective is policyholder protection. And only today, the IIS uh, did put out an important statement uh, dealing with prudential and uh, financial stability considerations and how uh, to balance those, of course, with um, uh, fair treatment of customers and policyholder protection. Um, it's clear that um, in, in, for insurance, um, the crisis really hits uh, companies in two ways. So one, of course, on the asset side, uh, the wild swings in valuation of some of the assets that insurance companies are holding onto, um, and they're subject to those swings, and uh, that can have a very detrimental effect, uh, effect on their investments and on their assets. And secondly, also on the liability side. And so thinking about uh, the potential liabilities uh, associated with COVID-19, um, I suspect causes a lot of stress amongst insurance company executives, um, because I know that it causes a lot of stress amongst insurance supervisors. And so right now, working through the crisis, you know, it's very important that we continue to support uh, policyholder protection. Uh, we continue to support the fair treatment of customers. And I would say that um, when we think towards the future, and the ultimate impact um, that this crisis has on the insurance sector, and particularly on uh, the potential for increasing um, confidence in the insurance sector and hopefully increasing insurance penetration rates. Um, I hope that we're able to look back and think uh, and reflect on um, the fact that insurance companies um, really stepped up 
uh, supported their policyholders, uh, clearly communicated with them, and took it as an opportunity uh, to build trust and confidence in the sector. And hopefully, uh, as a result, uh, we're able to demonstrate the value of insurance, um, hopefully also um, to build an appreciation for the valuable protections that insurance can provide. So I think overall, um, we'll have to see how the crisis evolves and what it means for um, insurance companies and how uh, the insurance industry comes out of it. But I do hope um, that this crisis um, does become an opportunity to further build confidence and trust within the insurance sector and hopefully help to improve uh, some of those very low insurance penetration rates in the developing world. Uh, Connor, well said. Insurance and protection is so critical and times like these is when you really need it most. Uh, Governor, back to you. Uh, National Bank of Rwanda regulates and supervises all um, sectors other than security, so insurance, uh, pensions, banking. Um, with the COVID-19 pandemic spreading globally, what supervisory measures have you taken to mitigate its impact on the financial sector in Rwanda? And I should mention to our participants that I think prior to the uh, crisis, by many indicators, many measures, Rwanda had been regarded as a success story for rapid growth in Africa. And, uh, you know, so therefore, whatever you're doing here to protect would be very interesting for us to know. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Babak. I think, as, as I said earlier, this uh, crisis started with the health crisis. Then governments, like our government, took measures to, to, to curb the spread of the virus. And therefore, we had to close most of the uh, activities, economic activities. And so from the central bank point of view, I think our first uh, uh, analysis was how was this going to affect uh, the economy or the financial sector, the businesses. And number one, we had to allow a special uh, restructuring uh, by banks to their customers. Uh, normally, as, as, as uh, regulators know, we, we limit on the number of restructuring banks can do for their customers. So we had to allow a special window to, for restructuring for uh, loans that will be hit by this crisis. So one, that's step number one we took. And um, in the first three weeks, banks had almost 25% of their customers applying for restructuring of their loans. And that together with the fact that the economic activities were now uh, almost uh, non-existent, we expected that the banks would face liquidity challenges. So we had to uh, introduce uh, two measures to, to support banks with their liquidity. One, we reduced our uh, reserve share requirements from 5% from to 4%, and that's allow them some good uh, liquidity that we use to deal with the challenges that we are in. But we also put up a special fund, uh, standby uh, credit facility or liquidity facility for banks that they can assess at central bank rate and can borrow it for up to maximum of one year uh, to deal with the challenges of liquidity that would come from the, uh, the their customer that are not able to service their loans, but also with the limited financial uh, economic activities, I would, we didn't expect much deposits to be coming to the banks. 
And so uh, those were the two main uh, measures taken to deal with any challenges of liquidity. Of course, as a regulator, we are concerned with the stability of the banks. So we had to follow up how they were implementing their business continuity plans uh, to ensure that we didn't have any, any big challenges within uh, the, the, the industry. I'm mainly focusing on banks because that's where we had big issues that, that could, uh, and banks to, to some extent, we bring in microfinance institutions that also uh, supervise. Uh, then beyond uh, dealing with the, that uh, short-term measures, we engaged and we worked with government and the government has now introduced uh, a, a, an economic recovery fund of 100, uh, that's about 200 million to start with. And that supports farms in, from two angles. One, we know that the hospitality industry has been hit hard and that is one of our main uh, sectors in this country. So we, we know that hotels will take long to open because of the uh, the, the, the widespread crisis across the globe. So we'll be supporting, government will be supporting hotels to deal with their exposure in banks, indirectly also protecting banks against uh, credit uh, risk of these institutions. Then number two, another window is to facilitate different firms to get cheap working capital for them to restart their businesses. Uh, we started a soft opening of the lockdown this week. And so if all goes well, we expect things, uh, business resume uh, normally over the next one or two, three months. So we expect farms were hit and therefore they need some soft loans to start their businesses. And we expect that to really help to kickstart the economy again. These were the main uh, 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 measures taken by, by the central bank and to an extent working with the government again, but also worked with the the payment industry uh, and moved almost digital. So maybe we might come back to that uh, as we continue discussing. But we worked with the banks, with the telecom companies to make it easy for uh, citizens to transact using digital channels to avoid any, uh, any transmission of this virus through uh, uh, handling of cash. Very interesting. So it sounds like... Uh... I mean, you mentioned a couple of interesting points, handling of cash, uh, which is becoming very challenging and also soft reopening and the measures meant to be taking. And I'd like to ask my colleague, Diana, to uh, put up a notice that we are uh, promoting for a program, not a program, it's actually another webinar we are doing, which is on supervising the new normal. Because governor, what you and others talk about reopening, in some ways we have to look at it in the context of the new normal. Like we're not really going back to the uh, normal normal until, as we all know, there's a vaccine of some kind. So the lead speakers are going to be Governor Stefan Ingves uh, of the Central Bank of Sweden. Many of you know him as the former chair of the Basel Committee. He's also the chair of Toronto Center. And Dr. Navarro, David Navarro from the WHO. We we'll also have a third speaker, which we're planning, we're hoping to confirm soon. And this series will really talk more about the challenges there. So please tune in and perhaps you, Governor, and uh, Connor at a later date can come back and help us with that uh, series as well. So thank you. Going back, thank you, Diana. Going back to um, uh, Connor now. So Connor, as a global insurance supervisory standard setter, how is the IIS responding to this crisis? 
to support its members in order to develop and maintain fair, safe, and stable insurance markets for the benefit and protection of policyholders, please. Thank you. Well, thanks, um, thanks, Babak. And um, returning to one of the points that the governor made at the very beginning, um, which was the fact that we're dealing now with a crisis. It's very different than the 2008 financial crisis. Um, we're dealing with a crisis that is now having very significant uh, effects on the financial sector, uh, but these effects are cross-sectoral in nature. Um, they're not affecting banking, they're not affecting insurance, they're not affecting securities markets, they're affecting all of us um, in, in very similar and very uh, significant ways. Uh, so many of the issues that we're facing in response to COVID-19 do require a cross-sectoral response. And so we have been working very closely uh, with our colleagues at the Basel Committee uh, at IOSCO, uh, the securities regulation uh, organization uh, and uh, with the financial stability board uh, as well as the committee on payments and market infrastructure uh, to really understand some of the cross-sectoral implications of it um, but also uh, to the extent possible uh, work collaboratively uh, to address some of the issues uh, monitor the developments and, and respond appropriately in terms of our work um, i think it can be broadly ca uh, captured in, in sort of three streams so first and foremost is on the risk assessment side. Um, so um, looking at uh, the global insurance market, understanding some of the vulnerabilities within the global insurance market, and hopefully uh, bringing a, an insurance perspective uh, to some of the global forums that are talking about um, the impact of uh, COVID-19 on the, on the financial sector. Um, <clears throat> now it's clear uh, that we have to look at this from the perspective of really what is the effect um, as I mentioned before, on the asset side of the balance sheet for insurance companies. Um, and then we also have to look at some of the solvency implications of um, uh, some of the coverage and uh, business interruption insurance. It's been one of the issues that I think has gotten a lot of attention in the media recently. Uh, and the question around uh, to what extent uh, insurance companies have provided uh, explicitly or implicitly uh, protection uh, and to what extent are insurance um, companies being put in a position by various initiatives around the world uh, to encourage um, um, insurance uh, companies to retroactively uh, cover some of these risks. Um, and these were risks that um, potentially weren't actually priced into the premiums that were paid by businesses. Um, and so ultimately uh, insurance companies could face a fairly significant solvency hit um, if indeed some of these initiatives were to come to bear and actually um, um, require um, um, uh, payment from insurance companies. The second piece that we've been working on uh, is really on the information sharing side. Um, it's clear um, that jurisdictions around the world uh, have taken a number of measures uh, to support the financial sector, uh, to support the broader economy, the real economy, and so ultimately, um, what we've been trying to do is uh, to work with our members to understand what uh, insurance supervisors in particular have been doing, um, to share that information and give access to our membership, uh, the wealth of data and information uh, that we as a global organization can pull together um, and, and put into the hands of our membership, particularly who are looking at uh, what steps they should take, what has been the impact of some of the steps that other supervisors have taken, um, what consideration should be given in terms of the effect of certain measures. So I think this information ex exchange piece is, is, a, is a real important uh, value that the IIS can bring and that we've been focusing uh, extensively on over the past uh, two months. A third component is really on the, 
on the coordination and cooperation. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned before, working closely with our peers and the standard setting bodies, um, making sure that we understand um, how uh, these issues are filtering through different aspects of the, of the financial sector and potentially um, forecasting where there could be an impact on the insurance sector, but also making sure that uh, our colleagues in the other standard setting bodies and in other organizations that have a interest or mandate to monitor financial stability, that they're informed of some of the impacts on insurance. And then we've also been working very closely with our stakeholder community, uh, really working to understand how uh, different companies are responding, uh, consumer groups, um, and uh, I think helping to ensure that there is an ongoing dialogue um, between supervisors, uh, stakeholders, uh, at the regional and global level and the extent to which the IAS can support that. And lastly, I would just highlight that um, you know, discussions like this, we also see as being critically important for the IIS, uh, reaching out to supervisors directly, having the opportunity for us to share what the IIS is doing, but also having the opportunity to hear directly from supervisors who are um, you know, at the front line of dealing with this crisis, what are some of the issues that they're facing. So um, I think overall those three areas of work really encapsulate what the IIS has been doing in response to uh, COVID-19 and how we've, I think, successfully reoriented ourselves to respond to the crisis and bring value to our membership. Thank you very much. It's actually refreshing to hear what you're saying because it underscores the importance of global cooperation and because uh, we're not getting a lot of good messages from several world leaders about the importance of global cooperation. So, so to have organizations like you that are there leading the charge is very comforting to know that things are working. So thank you for that. And thank you for all your sleepless nights, I'm sure over the past several weeks, uh, making sure all of these pieces come together. Governor, if I may uh, turn to you, you, you refer to aspects of this question. So you may want to uh, make your answer possibly a little bit more concise so we can do other questions as well. In the wake of COVID-19, can we not take a look at the inside of your institution? How have your staff been affected? And have you activated your business continuity plan or any other crisis management arrangements? Thank you. Yeah, yes. Okay. Uh, I think the, the, the first point I want to make is we are happy that to date none of our staff uh, has been directly affected by the, the the, the the virus at least we've we've done tests for almost uh, a third of our staff and they're all uh, negative so we, we are happy with that uh, but then when we, this crisis started uh, to enforce the distancing uh, principle that was advised across the world we had to move to working from home and we are lucky that we had been undergoing a journey of uh, automating our operations and processes. So by the time it happened, we were ready to move digital. Uh, we, we, in fact, we remained at the bank. We retained uh, about 17, uh, in fact, less than 17, about 13 staff out of about 404 uh, total staff we have in the bank. And these were people dealing directly with the uh, uh, with draws of banks, uh, this is a currency management team only, and then some few IT staff that we are managing centrally the, the use of uh, the system. So we, the, the, 
all the payments, all the, the payments, whether between banks of banking, banks banking with us, government operations, all that are done online. And so we didn't have any problem with that. It was being processed by our staff from home. Uh, movement of documents, signing of documents, we are doing that online. Uh, so we immediately really uh, started implementing our business continuity plan. And we, we haven't really had any, any big problem during the crisis uh, because we are lucky that we had automated most of our operations. Connor, um, this next question may start off by appearing to be a bit of a commercial for IIS from us. Uh, so a bit of a humble bragging for our partner here, but uh, there, is a, there is a real punchline at the end. So bear with me for a second. So in 2019, um, you really accomplished a lot, IIS, uh, substantially revised the set of uh, ICPs, insurance core principles, the adoption of ComFrame, the first global framework for the effective and globally consistent supervision of internationally active insurance groups, the adoption of the holistic framework for assessing and mitigating systemic risk in the global insurance sector, just to name a few. So the punchline is this. How is IIS making sure that implementation of insurance reforms will not far behind, fall behind um, for its members due to this COVID uh, disruption that we're all facing? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Babak. And I appreciate um, um, the opportunity, of course, to, to highlight that uh, 2019 was indeed a very significant year for the IIS. Uh, we made um, progress on all of the key policy initiatives that we had taken on post-2008 uh, global financial crisis. And to bring those to a close uh, towards the end of 2019 was a great accomplishment on the part of our membership to come together and agree on some fairly significant uh, reforms. So um, I don't think that anyone could have predicted in 2019 that we were about to head into uh, the scenario that we find ourselves in now. Um, but I can say that uh, within the IIS, of course, we have been very mindful of the need to provide um, operational relief uh, to our member supervisors and to insurance companies at this time. Um, our stakeholders, in particular insurance companies, we rely on extensively uh, in terms of the implementation of our supervisory material and the reforms that we adopted in 2019 are no different. Um, we require, of course, their active participation in, um, uh, in ensuring comprehensive and consistent implementation. Um, so in March, our executive committee took a number of, uh, I think, very important decisions uh, to provide operational relief. Um, but at the same time, uh, to state unequivocally um, that this would not um, mean a delay in implementation. Uh, we would continue uh, to go ahead uh, as planned in terms of uh, implementation, but recognizing some of the tools that we had um, for implementation, both uh, in terms of uh, the monitoring um, of the implementation of the insurance uh, capital standard, uh, as well as the holistic framework. So the policy measures that are, uh, that are part of that, um, um, that framework and the implementation of those policy measures by supervisors, um, there would be um, no uh, delay to the timelines. However, what we did say uh, was that we would 
um, recognizing the challenges of associated with COVID-19, that we would extend some of the deadlines on our data collection work that goes along with supporting our work uh, with the holistic framework. Um, and secondly, um, with the uh, insurance capital standard. Uh, so we would extend the timelines for data submission on the part of our um, um, members and the information that they were collecting from insurance groups within their jurisdictions. And in terms of what I think is the most important tool that we as a global standard setting body have to, to really, um, I would say, drive implementation of the policy measures that we develop uh, by our member supervisors, our assessment tools. Um, we made a decision to continue with our assessment of the implementation of the policy measures that uh, are part of this holistic framework for identifying and mitigating systemic risk in the insurance sector. Um, so we are uh, continuing with our assessment. Uh, we have extended the timelines that jurisdictions have to respond uh, in this assessment. And we anticipate that we will uh, continue our assessment activities in 2021, 2022, uh, building off this initial assessment. So from my perspective, um, I think we've taken a very measured and balanced approach in terms of uh, recognizing the implications of COVID-19 on uh, the capacity of our members and our stakeholders, but at the same time, uh, unequivocally saying that implementation remains a priority and that we would continue our efforts to support implementation of uh, the reforms that we adopted in 2019. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Governor, I want to take a different tack, bring technology into the question and uh, impact on the poor. So digital financial services powered by fintech have the potential to lower costs by maximizing economies of scale, increase the speed, security, and transparency of transactions, and to allow for more tailored financial services that serve the poor, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. How are supervisors using technology to monitor financial institutions more effectively, I guess in our language, subtech? And, and is this making a difference in broadening financial inclusion in jurisdictions such, such as yours, please? Yeah, thank you, Babak. Uh, yes, as you said, we, we expect uh, digital financial services really to press significant control in uh, uh, improving financial inclusion and uh, making financial services more accessible and affordable, and also improving uh, economic uh, or financial pressures, at least the turnaround of uh, uh, economic transactions using digital financial services is going to be really high speed and that will have positive impact on the, on the economy. From our end, as, as the central bank, in fact, we play an active role in promoting, not just uh, 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 overseeing uh, the, the, the payment system through digital financial services, but we have a department that actively works with different uh, stakeholders to drive the growth of financial uh, or digital financial services within our country. One, it makes it easy for us from even a monetary policy point of view that we have the resources that outside there in people's pockets to be in uh, the formal sector, and therefore we are able to manage uh, financial resources within the economy in general, uh, but also uh, when we talk of subtech, like today we've uh, implemented an electronic data warehouse where we receive uh, all the data from our financial institutions that we regulate directly from the source, and we are able to, on time, to analyze what's happening within banks, 
Now, even taking that into consideration with this crisis we are in, so we are able to monitor what is happening across the financial institution because for them, they, they continued working. We took it as essential service within the country, so they continued working. And we are able to monitor, we are able to receive reports uh, where we are at home. We are able to interact with them where we are at home. And we are able to, to at least to ensure that nothing unusual uh, happens without our knowledge during this crisis. But also even going forward, we are able to have full information that is required and makes the, 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 the work of the financial institution, the regulated institutions, uh, easier to deal with us because uh, uh, the, the regulatory cost really goes down. Uh, so we, we, we think uh, it's really key that we, 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 we move digital, one, in terms of uh, uh, economic transactions, but also as regulators. Uh, we support that. Uh, we, we make it easy for innovators to bring on board uh, new products. We are able to, to follow that up and uh, encourage more products to come on board because we know the benefits of this. So, and it's helping us as, as regulators as well. Excellent. Governor, as you were talking, I, it would, it's just dawned on me. I mean, you, you, you put the points together about as you are uh, improving your system, greater access is becoming possible and then you have real-time access to information to be able to supervise. This uh, brings to my attention the fact that it's very, for me, very frustrating, the dichotomy between financial stability and financial inclusion for some people, as if you do one and then you do the other, but the two are in, intricately interconnected. I mean, IMF research suggests that risk to financial stability increase when access to credit is expanded without proper regulation and supervision. Again, IMF goes on, therefore investing in high quality supervision can pay big dividends as financial inclusion expands. This dovetails well with the mission of Toronto Center and that's where our interest comes in. We don't really see much of a dichotomy between the two. We see them as an interrelated system and I think the comments you made are a corroboration of that. Um, Connor, let me ask you the final question and then I'm very anxious to get to the um, question from the audience because we have excellent questions from them. So insurance supervisors have a significant role to play in facilitating innovation for greater societal benefits while ensuring prudent, fair and responsible use of technology in the interests of policyholders. How should supervisors respond to supervising in a digital era? And what do you see a role for an organization like Toronto Center who's underground that what can we do to help in this area? Thank you. Well, perfect. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll, take, the I'll take the question in two parts. Um, so I'll deal with uh, the, first quest uh, the first part of the question, and then I'll come back to where I see the Toronto Centre being um, in, a, in a strong position to be able to, to contribute to um, um, effective supervision. So in terms of the digital transformation that we're seeing within the insurance industry, it's very clear um, that developments are uh, moving ahead um, and this crisis actually could even accelerate some of those trends. Um, so um, even greater reliance on digital technology across the entire life cycle of the insurance business. So first and foremost, from our perspective, it's important that um, supervisors recognize the importance of building up capacity and expertise uh, in the area of data, data sciences, and, and really the fundamental technologies that are supporting some of these innovations. Uh, secondly, um, it's very clear that you have to continue with 
um, the ongoing uh, fundamental uh, supervisory skills. Um, just because it's a new technology doesn't mean that principles of uh, fair treatment of customers or sound prudential regulation don't apply. Um, I think it's very important to recognize that um, to be uh, supervising these new entrants into the field, um, you still need to build off the foundation of, of um, you know, sound knowledge of the core tenets of uh, supervision and regulation. Uh, the second piece that I would add, I mean, the third piece that I would add is, is really adapting a supervisory um, environment um, or building a supervisory environment for uh, innovation. And what we've seen um, in a number of jurisdictions is that it is um, a bit of a challenge um, uh, for new entrants to come in uh, to the market in the same way that a traditional service provider would come into the market. And there's a variety of reasons that I think uh, there is a sort of incumbent bias within a lot of regulatory frameworks. And recognizing that um, new technologies um, do need an opportunity to be tested, um, to be able to determine if they work, uh, if they can uh, deliver services that still maintain a high level of policy protection. Um, there needs to be um, an opportunity um, to look at those innovations and how they could come to the market and different approaches by different supervisors, sandboxes, uh, innovation hubs, et cetera. But it's clear that um, uh, the existing regulatory framework may not be the optimal one for encouraging innovation and then steps can be taken by supervisors uh, to find different avenues for new entrants to come into the market. The last piece, um, you know, fundamentally, as I mentioned, you know, we have to treat these new entrants as we would um, other entities that are coming into the market in terms of making sure that customers are treated fairly, uh, making sure that um, they're subject to sound prudential regulation. Um, but I think we also need to be mindful that some of the key concepts uh, around insurance supervision could change quite fundamentally in the coming years. And uh, some of the trends that we're seeing in terms of uh, big techs coming into uh, financial services spaces and some of the ways in which they're changing the business model of certain financial services. Um, we've seen this, I think, quite significantly on the payment side. Um, you know, ultimately, um, the entire game of supervision could change quite significantly in the coming years. So being mindful of what uh, we're seeing and some of the trends that we're seeing, and I think supervisors um, need to be um, continually continuously looking to the horizon in terms of you know, what does this really mean um, for how I go about my day-to-day -day job of supervision. Um, in terms of how the Toronto Centre can support um, supervisors who are going through this journey, you know, the, the Toronto Centre has a, a storied history of being able to train leaders in the financial services uh, regulatory space. Um, and I think um, ultimately um, good leadership is going to be a core component of making sure that um, supervisors are well prepared um, and are continuing along the pathway of, of um, understanding and responding to some of these trends that we're seeing uh, in terms of innovation. The second piece is that I would say um, I think we've seen uh, a demonstrable impact where we have uh, supervisors who have taken um, a, a forward stance, a forward look in terms of what um, skills and experiences they need to bring into the supervisory authority. Um, two examples that jump into my mind 
Uh, I'm not sure if I'm my friends from um, Kenya or my friends from Ghana are on the call, but uh, these are two supervisory authorities that I think have recognized the value of upskilling within their um, within their their uh, staff, and then also bringing in new talent and new experiences uh, who can work with some of the people who are in a position to um, bring technology um, and the positive impact of it to, to financial services. And so I do think that the Toronto Centre could play a very important role in terms of helping supervisory authorities to map out where they can upskill, how they can go about um, developing their supervisory staff, both in the fundamentals of supervision, uh, but also in terms of uh, bringing in the right um, people in terms of understanding technology and the impact that it can have on the financial sector. And I think um, these two areas are where the Toronto Centre is very well positioned to be able to contribute. Thank you very much, Connor. And this is very consistent with our strategic view of uh, how to get involved. And also, I, re I uh, highly recommend to the viewers to visit our website to take advantage of our Toronto Centre notes, TCNs on subtech, fintech, everything that's available there. And we are working on a project with USAID on sex, sex disaggregated data and regulatory technology and subtech. So we hope to be able to make that possible to the supervisory community. And we have pilot countries from Africa and uh, Latin America are participating in this and plus other programs that we're having in Asia. So thank you for that. Let me move to the audience questions. I'm very encouraged by the large number of questions we've received. And first, a big shout out to Gloria Igwe from Abuja, Nigeria, and from for Ademola Abeye from uh, Lagos, Nigeria. So already we have two uh, uh, nods from Nigeria here. So welcome everyone. So going to the Q&A, and I'm gonna try to assign as many as I can. So let's do some rapid answers to really, really good questions. So it's not a, um, not a justice to the questioner. Um, it's very easy during and after a crisis that we as regulators and supervisors could reach over, our, reach over our responsibilities. What advice could be given to regulators and supervisors regarding their roles when dealing with this crisis and how they regulate and supervise their institutions? So obviously it's a huge, huge question, but the idea is how do we not overreach? So Governor, can I ask you to take a stab at this one? Yeah, maybe. Connor would be the, the right person to answer that, but uh, I, I think it's it's true. We, we, we difficult times like this one might create uh, uh, challenges, and regulators may ease their grip on the, the, the regressions. And at the end of the day, you might have challenges. But it's what I would say. It's very important that we always have in mind the fact that stability remains the most important thing, the stability of the financial sector that we do regret. And so, as I said, while we, we, uh, we, we, we took measures to, to, to support, say, the business uh, firm that were having challenges with the banks, but we have uh, clear guidance on how this is going to be done, uh, not to compromise any uh, uh, principles of uh, financial stability. Uh, despite the challenges we are going through, we are keeping an eye of what is happening within the financial sector uh, through uh, uh, different channels. In fact, we engage and talk to the uh, uh, CEOs of the financial institutions. Uh, so I think I totally agree with the statement. Uh, we have to remain uh, focused and engaged on the ultimate goal 
of long-term financial stability as we try to solve short-term challenges. Yeah, good point. And also it underscores the point that for some stakeholders out there, they think the contribution of supervisors and regulators during crisis sometimes is to stay, get out of the way so that uh, stability to the system can be brought in. But at the same time, there's a very important mission and mandate that supervisors and regulators play. And it's very, very important for everyone to understand. And I think our supervisory audience understands they never get a positive press release about what they do, but they always get a finger blame pointed at them when something goes wrong. So, you know, it's, it's a tough um, balancing act here. Uh, Connor, the next question is sort of like, um, I guess, has a relation to this question. So let me just go right to you. Uh, what change, if any, do you see the pandemic have on financial stability going forward, perhaps for Connor? So you're actually mentioning the question. Do you see any um, changes and revision to international standards going forward? Um, so I'll take the first question and just to say that um, um, I, it's hard to predict with any level of certainty uh, what the long-term impact of this crisis is going to be on the financial sector. And I think ultimately um, supervisors taking prudent steps to contribute to financial stability are critically important and will continue to support our members in, in, in working through some of the challenges and the evolving nature of this crisis. Um, I would also just add um, one of the key things for supervisors, particularly for insurance supervisors, is never lose track of the key objectives. And I think ultimately that's how you prevent overreach. Um, so I just wanted to add that as a sort of anendum to the uh, governor's answer on the, first, uh, on the first question. In terms of our standards, do I see any changes? Uh, no, no. I think at this moment, uh, what we're seeing is that actually the standards that we've worked so hard on um, have contributed to the resilience of the financial sector. Um, but I'll offer a personal view as well, just because um, my time at the IIS will come to an end at some point in the not too distant future uh, when I hit my statutory maximum here. So I feel empowered to offer an, uh, a personal perspective. And uh, what I would say is that I think that one of the benefits that could come from this crisis is that there will be a more systematic view um, on how solvency and conduct risks interact. And this is particularly important in insurance, uh, where we are seeing some of the challenges around policyholder protection and prudential supervision. Uh, so I do hope um, that one of the benefits that come from this, uh, this really tragic crisis is the fact that um, supervisors, particularly insurance supervisors, uh, can have a deeper think of how these two areas of risk interact uh, so that we can have a more integrated view on uh, conduct and, and prudential regulation. Thank you for that, Connor. Um, um, yeah, I'm just reflecting on you saying that you'll be leaving. I hope uh, the statutes are revised because we need you at IIS and other international fora. Anyway, the governor, the next one is for you. And also before I do that, I think Nelson from Kenya likes the discussion. So thanks, Nelson. I really appreciate getting a positive comment from you. Back to the governor. I thank you for this panel and would like to ask the governor the specific measures taken for the microfinance sector, as these financial institutions don't usually have access to central bank money and so are not target of central bank importance in response to this pandemic. Do you have any views on this at all, governor? Yeah, interesting. This is something we've, uh, we've been discussing over the last uh, maybe one month. 
and finally we've settled to providing some resources to, to the microfinance institutions, uh, uh, looking at the mandates, our mandate as, as uh, uh, of financial stability mandate. There's the emergency liquidity facility that we can use in this case for the financial institutions we are overseeing. And uh, yes, so we, we are providing some resources, short-term liquidity uh, for any financial, uh, any microfinance institution that is stable, that is sound, that has uh, uh, securities either in government uh, securities or in uh, bank depots that can support them to get uh, this financing from ourselves. So, uh, as I said, we are, we are in unprecedented times, so we are trying to look for solutions to support our financial institutions uh, to go through this crisis. So, yes, we, we, are, we are providing something. Good. Difficult times. Um, I have a question here for one of our uh, Toronto Centre uh, uh, trainers. Um, uh, you mentioned, it's a question for Connor. You mentioned possible impacts on insurance companies, assets, and increased claims. Any concerns on insured people and companies to pay premiums? What is the role of the insurance supervisors to deal with this aspect during the crisis? Uh, thank you, and it's a, it's a, great, uh, it's a great question. Um, so ultimately, we haven't seen, um, I think, um, the full impact on the real economy, which is definitely going to have an impact on people's ability and capacity to continue to make payments um, to insurance companies uh, to pay premiums. Um, but I, I do think that it's important that insurance supervisors um, uh, do uh, implement measures that can provide greater flexibility for insurance companies in terms of uh, the different types uh, of payment that insurance companies can receive, uh, how uh, premiums can be collected, how insurance contracts can be executed. So I think that there's a number of steps that insurance supervisors are taking working with the industry uh, to provide greater flexibility for insurance companies and hopefully respond to some of the challenges that in, uh, insured people uh, are facing currently, um, but also over the sort of medium term horizon uh, could continue to face. So I think um, that flexibility uh, that insurance supervisors are taking uh, and the steps that insurance companies are, are taking to support um, uh, insured people, uh, premium uh, payers to uh, manage in this social distancing lockdown uh, situation, I think um, hopefully that will mitigate some of the worst effects, but we won't see uh, the longer term impact of uh, the crisis on the real economy and then consequentially on how it affects um, premium payments over the medium to longer term horizon for quite a while. Yeah, um, interesting point. And that's why for us, uh, this reopening uh, sounds much more optimistic than it is. And we kind of look at it as new normal, right? So supervising the new normal. So essentially what you talked about is very much relevant to that and fits well with that. Governor, this next question uh, strikes me as a business continuity type of an area. So what critical data and information should financial regulators and supervisors make sure they're getting from their regulated institutions and how frequent in the wake of COVID-19? So you probably thought about that in the context of all the disruptions. Yeah, I think uh, maybe the most frequent uh, data requesting from our financial institutions now is, uh, for example, we talked of the 
borrowers having challenges to finance their or to service their loans. So we, on a weekly basis, we are getting data on demands for restructuring, what kind of restructuring has been done, what does it mean on the overall uh, uh, loan book of, of the financial of the banks uh, and uh, down to the microfinance institutions. Uh, we are looking at, of course, we follow what's, what uh, uh, the, 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 the banks are doing in terms of their business continuity to be sure that there, there are no uh, disruptions that could cause uh, long-term uh, challenges to the stability of the financial institutions. Of course, we follow up liquidity uh, levels, uh, and uh, that we are able to, to to see if there are any challenges that could affect the the the, the capital base of the of the of the company. So we are looking at the main uh, indicators of financial stability uh, more closely even than before. Uh, but we, we, we are seeing challenges, but also really looking at the, the possible sources of problems, which is uh, the customers of these financial institutions. And so we see, following liquidity, how, as we said, uh, business entities are having challenges. So the flow of uh, liquidity, do we have any challenges of uh, a sort of run on financial institutions, people withdrawing their money? Uh, so we really follow up anything that could create uh, instability within the financial institutions. Connor, I wonder if I can uh, ask you to address this one, um, um, if you think that's, uh, that's appropriate for you. What do you foresee will be changed in respect to IFRS 17 in view of the effects of this pandemic? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> IFRS 17, um, a topic that um, only a couple of months ago was occupying actually a significant amount of our time, um, which is, uh, I think, uh, somewhat been overshadowed as of late. But um, I think from our perspective, it's important that um, um, there be a realistic uh, view in terms of implementation. Um, it's clear that there's going to be a lot of challenges um, in terms of uh, implementation, even in a best case scenario, so not in a crisis situation, in a best case scenario in terms of making sure that the capacity exists within the market, uh, within insurance companies, uh, within the supervisory authorities, um, within other regulatory authorities that of course are, are going to have a role in this. Um, so when you think about the transition and implementation of IFRS 17, um, I think um, the delays in terms of implementation are, are, are positive. Um, I think also that um, uh, supervisors uh, and other organizations that are involved in the implementation of IFRS 17 um, take a look at um, a realistic view in terms of what they can do and the timelines that they have. Uh, and frankly, Babic, uh, this is actually another area where I think the Toronto Centre is, is very well positioned to work with the industry uh, and with supervisors in terms of addressing some of the challenges that exist in different markets uh, in terms of actually going through the process to implement IFRS 17. Governor, um, that's something that we actually done some work on this for sure. Governor, this is uh, the next question is for you. I recall from reading your bio, if I'm not mistaken, you were a very senior official at the Revenue Commission of your country uh, prior to becoming a Minister of Finance. So it's appropriate for you. Uh, hopefully, I'm not throwing a hot potato at you. It's not about Rwanda, but maybe you can have some insights into this. Can central bank supervision of digital financial transaction in the, in the informal sector lead to increasing official control, i.e. taxation, etc., which could dampen the 
vitality of this sector, increasing poverty and even threatening, um, you know, survival uh, in these times of, uh, you know, COVID that are, you know, that are beyond the normal. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that uh, that question is asked because that's one of the sort of stumbling blocks to going digital in uh, uh, most of the business entities uh, uh, here or even across different countries because it really increases formality and of course the, the taxman's eye is always open. And, uh, but I think as, as, as authorities that want to promote long-term successes of uh, uh, formal uh, economies, I think we, 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 we have to structure our tax policy in a way that it doesn't discourage people moving digital. So that's very key. But again, I wouldn't want people to look at that as a negative issue uh, without looking at the positive, the benefits of going digital. Because these informal uh, sector organizations or microfinances, uh, my, micro uh, businesses, if they go digital, they, they, they move into the formal sector, they, they're able to deal with the financial institution, they're able to raise uh, financing to grow their businesses, they're able to benefit a lot by going uh, formal than the small fear that uh, the, the, the taxman will, will hit them hard on the head. Because at the end of the day, a good tax policy will not tax people outside, out of their businesses. So that, that's the tax policy is the key uh, to avoid taxing people out of businesses. But the benefits of going digital and therefore going formal are much more bigger than any fear of uh, taxation. Very good point. It's also an interesting pickle we're in, right? Because cash during COVID is a, is a dirty entity. You don't want people to carry cash, touch cash, deal with cash. And yet for many poor people, that seems to be, you know, one aspect of what they have. So you don't want to, uh, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, hope there was a better analogy than that. But I think you handled that question very well. We've come to the close. Uh, I need to apologize to our viewers for not being able to read all of your questions. Questions were great. The ones that have not been read are not lost. Uh, we have a record of all of them and we'll deal with them one way or another, either by responding to you directly or incorporating them into our training programs and publications. A huge thanks to our speakers. You were very kind and thoughtful with your uh, time, but also a big compliment to you. You had a wide range. Um, I mean, there are actors out there like Jack Nicholson or Russell Crowe can only act in one way, but you were like one of these other superstars who really could answer a wide range of questions in different ways. So thank you so much. You did extremely well and we are very grateful to you. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thanks again for- Thank you very much, Babak. Thank you, Governor. And thanks to the audience for the interacting questions. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. That was- um, Again, another great Toronto Centre program and look forward to the next opportunity to contribute. You'll, you'll be back. You, 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 the two of you will for sure be back. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank bye -bye. you.